If you have your um, Isaiah book, definitely um, be making notes on that because the end of our, we're like 18 or 17 weeks in Isaiah, which is a long time to be in a section of a book, not even the whole book. Um, they'll, the Sunday after we finish verse 55, um, it will be mostly about reflecting on stuff that we've learned. So it's not going to be so much like a sermon normal like we would do now, but it'll be a lot of like sharing stories of things that we've learned, maybe what God's taught us through looking at this book over an extended amount of time. Um, so you might need some notes because on Sunday you might be like, wait, what did we even do? Like, so it might be helpful to look back at it. You know, as I was um, looking at this section here, these uh, nine verses, which is the first servant song we have in Isaiah, more on that in a bit, um, the idea of being poor or needy came up a lot. Uh, and we'll look at some of that. Uh, and then I was, uh, did a quick search in the, my thesaurus on the computer and was looking at all the different words that we have for people who are needy or people who are poor, um, all the ways that we talk about being poor. Um, impoverished, destitute, deprived, penniless. I, I love the word skint. I feel like it sounds like what it is. It's like there's not a lot going on. Um, bankrupt, bust, insolvent, strapped. And then I found some that I was like, these are great sounding words, but no one will ever use normal kind of language. Impecunious. I've never used that word before. I didn't even know that word existed before. It's kind of cool. Uh, and this one's great too, pauperized. You've become like a pauper. You've been pauperized if you're poor. Uh, there are some great British expressions as well. On the bread line, on one's uppers. I didn't know, is, is this a thing, on one's uppers? Have you guys ever heard this before? Basically, you've walked so long in your shoes that you've worn the sole out and you're just walking on the upper part of your, your shoes because you can't afford to get one. Um, without two farthings to rub together. I know we use that every day. Uh, stony broke. I don't know where stony broke comes from. I have no idea the etymology of that one. Does anyone know? I never, yeah, well, um, we're all clueless. Uh, one definition, really, of this is just is needy. If you're poor, you're in need of something. You, you are unable to meet in often like immediate needs, whether it's something that reach out to the community is like um, food or, or clothing or even just a, a roof. Now, being needy, uh, generally, I don't really have to make a case for this, it's generally not seen as a good thing in our culture. Uh, we don't. Uh, that's, we don't want to be seen as needy um, because there's like a shame associated with that. We don't want to come across as needy, and maybe especially when we really are needy, because then it feels like uh, people are going to see that that small part of, of me inside. I think if we're seen as needy, we are seen as weak, and that tells other people and ourselves that we don't have enough to hold whatever needs to be held together. We don't like that being on display. We want to be seen as powerful and people who have it all together. Uh, in contrast to what the world might demand from us, or even what we might demand from ourselves, in the Bible, humans are often described as weak and needy. We're going to look at some of this in these, these verses here. I mean, all it took was one pandemic, and I think all of us realized how close to being needy we really were. And we could have gone through the pandemic like generally kind of okay, but it might have been really difficult for us. Because that neediness, that weakness is right above, right at the surface. Some areas in our life, we're weak. Uh, in some areas of our life, it's even more than a weakness. It's slavery. It's not just that you're weak to something, you're like beheld to something, and that thing has control over you. Now, whether you're weak or a slave, uh, this is true. You, by yourself, do not have what you need. A slave cannot free themselves. They don't have the power to do that. Uh, those who are weak are often oppressed and made into slaves because it's really easy to oppress people who are weak. And those who are slaves, of course, already are oppressed. Now, the Bible talks about uh, and describes us as weak and slaves, um, 
But thankfully, that, that's not the end of the story. That's not even the beginning of the story, nor is it the end. It's just kind of the middle part. And Jesus comes exactly to those who are weak and to those who are his slaves. That's kind of like his thing. That's his jam. He loves going to people who are weak. He goes, loves going to people who are needy. He loves going to people who are slaves and renewing them and, and giving them a wholeness that they didn't have before outside of themselves. Those are his people. So if you're weak and you're needy, if you feel like that at all today, like, that's good. Like, that's Jesus' people. And because Jesus renews the weak and the slaves, he heals them, he makes them whole, and he frees them and releases them. Through Jesus, those who are weak and those who are slaves are made whole, we're, made, we're healed, we're freed, and we're released. So this section of Isaiah here, these first nine verses, it's called a, um, a servant song. So there's four of these in Isaiah. This is the first one, in the, and they're all in our little section that we're studying here. They're all kind of like little mini poems within like a poem, because Isaiah's prophecy, which is like this entire book, is like Isaiah's prophecy. It's a really long one, a really big one. I and mean, it's taking us 17 weeks to go through 15 or 16 chapters. And we're going through it kind of quickly. Uh, but within these kind of like poetic lines are these small kind of standalone, almost standalone kind of um, mini episodes. And this is one of those mini episodes here. It's kind of um, a big thing. And, and maybe if you've been around the church a little bit, um, some of these words, some of the language, even the way that this is being talked about might be kind of familiar. Because often how Jesus described himself or a similar kind of language that's going on here. Um, what we're... Um, going to look at today is, uh, for, we're going to look at what that servant, who that servant is, um, but then we're also going to look at who we are as his servants. And actually, in the second page of your Isaiah book, there's like some like theological themes in there. Um, this one really hits on that, one of that theme that says like the servant with a capital S and servants with lowercase s. I just love it. There's going to be building work going on the entire time. Um, it's a test of, um, am I dynamic enough to hold your attention? Probably not. I'm just going to be looking at them. Um, the, uh, so in the, the beginning part of your, of your Isaiah book, you don't have to read it now, but it's a bit of a, like a theological overview of what is going on here. Uh, this is a song about the servant, capital S, the servant of God, the one who will come and live a perfect life and will put the, put the world to, in the way that it ought to be. But before we look at that capital S servant, we get a view of ourselves. So let's first look at ourselves uh, with this... Um, really how we're described here as slaves. One of the things Isaiah 42 tells us is that we're slaves. We're described as blind, as captives in prison, as those in a dungeon sitting in darkness. So we're gonna take those three things, blind, uh, captives, and uh, sitting in darkness. We're gonna look at those for a moment here. A person who is blind is powerless under nature. Whether they came into the world that way, or maybe something happened, they're powerless to change their own blindness. They, they don't have the power to do it. They might have came into the world without sight, and they're missing some aspect of their body. That means they're also missing out on some aspect of sensing and seeing their world. There's like a way that they see the world, but not, uh, not completely yet. Especially in uh, this time that Isaiah is writing, a blind person would be utterly dependent on other people to take care of them. Like their job would basically be begging. Like if they could get a job, if they could beg. They would be destitute or close to it. They, if, if they had family members and they had family members to take care of them, they didn't have family members, then hopefully they would have a good friend or two that would take care of them. Other than that, they're powerless under nature. They're slaves, really. And then we have the captives from prison. Those who are captives in prison are powerless under other people. If you're a captive, if you're a prisoner, like, you don't really have very much say in if you're getting out or when you do. In fact, the words uh, to bind and captive are, in Hebrew are very close to each other. 
A captive in prison is powerless under the actions of others. If you're a prisoner today, your life's constrained. You, uh, any kind of timings and all sorts of things are all sorted by, by the prison guards, by the, the warden. You don't have freedom. You don't see other people. It's not a fun and enjoyable life, being a captive. Dangers lurk there, not, not just in this time, but definitely today. And especially during Isaiah's time, you weren't guaranteed food and drink. The only way you would survive prison is if family members or other people would come and take care of you and give you food and drink that you need. Otherwise, you'd, you'd waste away. Captives are powerless under other people. And then the end of this phrase, um, which is, um, uh, by the way, we're in verse 7, if I didn't notice. The end of this phrase, so open the captives that are, that are blind to free the captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So the end of that phrase is about those who are in a dungeon sitting in complete darkness. So darkness would be really, or a dungeon would be really dark because it's the very bottom level of the prison. It's underground, there's no uh, kind of light coming in, it's just completely dark. There's no torches or things like that at this time. It was the deepest pit in a prison. Sitting in darkness is like a resignation. It's not just like enduring the darkness, it's not just kind of like struggling against the darkness. The, the people who are described here are those who are sitting in darkness. It's like just a resignation of a lightless life. See, the blind are powerless under nature, Captors are powerless under other people, but here, those who are sitting in the darkness, it kind of also points to a problem within us, a resignation, a giving up of life. See, we are really, I think if we're honest with ourselves, and if we take a moment to think about it, we really are powerless within ourselves. What kind of power does someone have in a dark dungeon? Not really very much. Are they going to release themselves? No. Are they going to find freedom? No. Are they going to be the best version of themselves? Like, no. They're powerless within and of course, this isn't just an illustration of people who lived thousands of years ago. And this isn't just about people who are in an actual dungeon. Isaiah is giving us an image of spiritually how poor we really are. What's going on inside of our hearts, if we're honest. How needy we really are. And this is a spiritual image. We're slaves, we're captives, and we've kind of resigned ourselves to the darkness. That's a grim way to start any kind of message, isn't it? Wow, why do you start in verse 7? It could have started in verse 1. Talk about delighting in something. There's no delight here. Well, it's not really nice. You know, Christianity is many things, but it certainly is not really nice often. What it does help us, though, it helps us see the truth. And this is who we are. The truth is a good thing, even if it might be difficult to hear or not nice. The truth is a very good thing because it shows us reality, where we really are. If you eat a piece of cake and you have like a food trapped in your beard, like in a flavor-saving beard like mine, uh, like a piece or two, you know, might get caught up in that, that thing. Um, it may not feel nice when I'm having a chat with you to let me know, hey, you have like half of a cake stuck in your face. But that is actually a really kind thing because then I'm walking around with like, you know, thankfully now I don't have the cake stuck in my face. I can't see my own face. So unless someone else tells me, I'll be completely ignorant of it and walking around as if I'm totally normal where I have like this weird growth coming out of me. And this is Isaiah telling us, here is the human condition. Here is what we're like in one verse. So we're slaves, uh, but then also uh, we get another view of ourselves. We're not just as slaves, but also as weak. Uh, in verse 3, if you, if you look at it, it says, um, talking about this servant, he says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So uh, before we talk about good things for that, and, and how this servant will work for those who are either bruised reeds or smoldering wicks. This is a description of who we are. We're described as those who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. A bruised reed cannot hold itself up. In fact, 
if you've never seen a reed before, here it is. That's the, the reed part, is that stick part. The whole point of the reed, the whole point of that stick is to be stood up and it's been broken, it's, it's fallen over. I wonder if you've ever felt like that before. You're just like, ah, just broken. We're not told how the, brood, the reed got bruised whether it was their own fault or someone else or someone just came by just because they wanted to or the wind blew really hard. We're not told what that's like. We're told that's how we are. It doesn't matter how you came to this position of your back stooped with whatever kind of burdens, whatever kind of brokenness you have. It doesn't matter how this reed came to be bruised. The thing that actually matters is right now it is. A bruised reed is weak in our world. does not see weak people as useful. Therefore, does not see weak people with a lot of dignity. Often the reason why I think if you're a Christian and you don't share actual real prayer requests, which is something that we all do, you know, um, pray for this small thing or pray for, uh, pray for me to be, you know, stop being so efficient so I can get some sleep. You know, all the kind of ways that we do prayer requests to like make ourselves look awesome. Um, but the reason why I think sometimes we don't share real actual prayer requests is because uh, we don't want other people to see us as weak. Oftentimes I'll hear, oh, I don't want to be a burden on other people. But that might be true, but I think it's really true. We don't want to appear as burdens. I think that's the real thing. And especially if it's in a group that maybe, I don't know, are they trustworthy or not, and we're never going to really know unless we share that side of us. And that could be a really difficult and scary thing. I totally get it. But it is maybe a little bit less, and le- less scary and less difficult if all of us in whatever kind of group we're in recognize that actually we're all kind of the same. We're all like that Bruce Reed there. All weak and generally maybe not as useful, maybe not as, useful as we think. And the same thing for a smoldering wick. So a smoldering wick is like uh, someone who's like near the end of their rope. It could be near the end of your life, of nearing the end of whatever kind of usefulness that you're told that you might have. There's still a spark there, but, but only just. And if you aren't useful anymore, then this world doesn't have much use for you. There isn't much, much dignity for those who are older or retired. Talking to Chris and Eileen, it, it said, you know, the church kind of generally doesn't really care about people who live in retirement flats. You know, they're right, they're true. There's not much dignity either for those who have been through difficult situations and don't emerge as like the victor, but maybe just kind of barely emerge and they actually need a lot of help. Often the experience for the bruised reed is for someone to come along and break it right off. Often the experience for someone who has a smoldering wick is for someone to come around and snuff it out. Just like with being slaves, it's like a real image of who we are. We're weak. We're slaves and we're weak. We're, we're weak slaves. That puts us in a really needy position. A weak slave is not in control. A weak slave may not have like amazing things to offer this world. Weak slaves by themselves are powerless to change their position in life. But the times that we live in are also drenched with this like amazing levels of, of overly optimistic positivity. You can read anything anywhere that you can do it. You can just be yourself and, you know, you have all, you, everything that you need within you to, to sort life out. Some call this like an overdose of positivity or, or really what ends up being is like toxic positivity. To tell a smoldering wick that they can be whatever they want as long as they just try hard. That's not encouraging. That's toxic. That just shows someone who feels like that, this is just another good thing I'm not good at. I'm not good at being good. I'm not good at feeling good. And I'm also not good at all these loads of other things as well. To tell a, um, uh, someone who is a, a bruised reed to just dream big and try hard, that's not really loving. To tell someone in the dungeon, the dungeon where no light comes in to look on the bright side, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, you know, there's a silver lining. Like, no, there's not. It's just really bad. 
That's a cruel thing to do, actually, to tell someone who's in the dungeon to look on the bright side. See, positive messages can be good. We're not like anti-positive messages. But if we only surround ourselves by the self-help, feel-good messages of the day, that turns positivity, and what ordinarily would be a good thing, turns positivity into oppression. That's another thing that is on our back, and we're stooped over and bruised even more. So because we know that we can't keep that up in real life, but we want to show the world that we're not weak, we want to show the world that we're not needy, we create these like false selves that we love to put on. All these false selves. We show the others this false self of having it all together, but in reality, we know we don't. And then we wonder why we feel lonely and isolated, because we never actually show ourselves when we're even around people. We say these things to each other, to ourselves and to others, because recognizing that we're weak slaves might be a bit much. So we say, oh, don't think about it, stay positive. And all like the Christian versions of that. We say, ah, delete negativity or positive vibes only or like all the Christian versions of that. I'm too blessed to be stressed. That was a, um, a bumper sticker we love seeing in America. Anytime we see that on a car, just like shake our heads, laugh a little bit because it's hilarious. But also like, ah, that's a horrible way to live. I'm too uh, bad things are happening. Yeah, but I'm too blessed to even think about those bad things. Everything happens for a reason. Now that might be true, but using that in the wrong situation is a horrible thing to say. Now, also, what's combined with that is this fallacy of God is just trying to teach me a lesson. The reason why I'm in a difficult spot is because God's trying to teach me a lesson. Once I get this lesson, then he's going to remove the difficulty and everything will be okay. That's not how it works. It is what it is, which is like sitting in the dungeon, resignation to life. Now, it, that's a personal pet peeve of mine because people in South Carolina used to say it. Um, it is what it is, but basically that was like, I am not going to do anything about it. I'm not saying these are things that we can't say. I'm saying sometimes there's a reason why we say these things, and what they're often doing is fleeing from that reality that we're weak and that we're needy. Oh, another thing that we do, is, which is great, is it could be worse. Of course it could be worse. It could always be worse. I could be literally on fire while talking to you, and then you'd be like, actually, no, it could be worse. You could be exploding at the same time. Like, it always could be worse. But we say that in order to be like, don't think about how bad it is, because if we do that, maybe we don't know how to deal with it, uh, we obviously don't like those feelings, but also me talking to you, I'm not capable in order to help you through it. Of course you're not. By ourselves, these are the best things that we have. By ourselves, the best thing we can say, it is what it is or it could be worse. And we say all this to suppress the truth that we're weak slaves. And not just in our experience of living life now, but in the end, when we die. What power does any of us have over death? But there is better news for us. This isn't just like getting grim and grim and grim. Oh, we're stepping into some of it. Um, there's much better news in these kind of lame throwaway lines for us to live by. And look, we've been seeing how in Isaiah, the context of chaos and disaster is exactly the right environment for God to cultivate a people of hope instead of despair. And the way this works out specifically in these nine verses is first is coming to terms with our weakness, with our slavery. That's the perfect environment to experience dignity to experience freedom, to experience joy, to experience life, all the life that God has for us. That, our own kind of weakness is a perfect environment to experience those things because it's right there that Jesus says he does a new thing. That's where Jesus does new things. And the great news that we have in these nine verses is that Jesus gets to renew weak slaves. Jesus renews weak slaves. That's really good news, especially if anything that I said just like slightly identified with who you were. It's really good news for weak slaves. If you're not a weak slave, this is maybe good information, but it's maybe not be great news for you. But for all of us who identify as weak, identify as slaves, this is great news. The first thing we get um, is in the very first verse is about the servant. 
This is the father telling uh, Isaiah, who is telling God's people about this coming servant. It says, here is my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Verse one says this servant is chosen by God. He's chosen, um, so he's good for the job. But more than just being like a useful, pragmatic tool, like how we might see our, our politicians, like, oh, their lives are crazy, but I'm gonna elect this guy because he's gonna get these things done. Uh, far away from that is someone who the father actually delights in. I've chosen this one in whom I delight. Like the father loves this person. The presence of God is upon him. He says, I will put my spirit on him. That the, spirit, the father's spirit on someone is the presence of God in, on that person, in that person. So he's good for the job. He's a delight for the, of the father, and it's the presence of God. Verse three says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, and faithfulness he will bring forth justice. So he's faithful. In his faithfulness, he works. Unlike our experience of people who might lead others where they're not really working out of faithfulness to any kind of positive thing, let alone to God. In the beginning of verse four says that uh, this servant will not falter, will not be discouraged. So he won't falter, he won't be discouraged. So this servant is very different to the weak slaves we hear on the other side. So we're described as these weak slaves. This servant is described as someone who's not going to falter, who's not going to be discouraged. He has this inner power to keep going even when it's difficult, but um, also against all uh, resilience, against all what might come from outside himself, he's not going to be discouraged. He's not going to falter. He's going to keep on the mission that God has for him. And in all of this, he's working this out in faithfulness to God, not from his own gain, not from getting rich, not from getting powerful, not chasing after comfort. He is faithful to God. And it's because of his faithfulness to God that allows us to be able to trust him in leading us. So what is this servant gonna do? This servant says he's going to bring justice to the nations. It says that in verse, uh, verse one. Justice to the nations. That's what he's gonna do. And justice, um, we might first especially think of like a courtroom situation um, where like uh, punishments are doled out and um, people get you know, what they deserve. And of course, that's an aspect of justice. But justice is a much more broader term than that. It's everything that's messed up, getting it in the right order. Everything that's wrong, putting it in the order that it ought to be. Justice is setting everything right, making everything right. And the end of verse three, we also read the uh, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Uh, and then uh, in verse four, he says he will establish justice. So if in nine verses you get the same word repeated over and over, like three times, kind of a big deal. So justice is a big part of what, uh, of what this servant will do. Now, let's look at, um, look at verse four with me. If you have it in your book or if in your Bible there. Um, he will not falter discourage till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So he's going to establish justice on the earth. And the next line we read, in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Now, uh, the way that Hebrew poetry works is you often have lines, um, they're called parallelism. So you have lines that connect to each other. And there's a relationship between certain lines um, and often the question Hebrew, Hebrew poetry is like, how are these lines relating? Like, um, he's going from justice and like jumping to teaching. Like, what's the deal with that? Which is something that, unless we spend a little bit of time thinking about, we probably would just read and gloss over. But the reason why I'm spending some time on this is because what uh, his teaching is doing is helping uh, describe and explain how this servant is bringing forth his justice. Teaching here helps describe the kind of justice that this servant is about. So that means this servant is going to bring about his justice through his teaching. That's not something I would think of immediately. Justice, I feel like, you know, 
poor get raised up. People who are like taking advantage of the poor get like, you know, cut down, all that kind of stuff. But this is a little bit different. In his teaching, not only is that part of his justice, but the islands, which are like the farthest reaches of, of the known world, they're going to put their hope in his teaching as well. That's an aspect of justice too, having something to hope in. So what's included in this big umbrella term of justice is the servant carrying a message to the world, bringing truth through teaching. God's word going forth is an aspect of justice. If you think of evangelism, if you're a Christian talking about Jesus, that is an, is an act of love. It is also an act of justice because a world where people do not hear God's word is an unjust world. That's an unjust system. If we have people who uh, are living their lives and they don't get access to hearing God's word in a way that makes sense to them, that's completely unjust and that needs to be fixed. So that also means a lack of evangelism is perpetuating an unjust system. That kind of changes how we might view evangelism a little bit. It's not just like, oh, it might be a good idea to do. It's actually like, I don't want to continue in the oppression of someone who's in an unjust system. And so as difficult as it might be for me to say this little thing about Jesus that I feel like makes sense in this conversation right now, I'm going to do it. That's what, that's what justice means, is talking about Jesus sometimes. Now, what does this kind of justice lead to? We're told this in verse 7. There's great stuff for people who are weak slaves. The, this justice is going to open eyes of those who are blind, going to free captives from prison, going to release from the dungeon those who sit in the darkness. Blind eyes will be opened, captives will be freed, those in the dark will be released. That is an end of oppression. And the way that happens is through the teaching, through God's word coming to the world. So God's word coming to the world um, undoes all of these oppressive things that go on in our hearts. Everything that holds us back, there's an end to that through the justice that the servant is bringing as he brings the word to the world. Does that make sense? Do you see that connection there between, hopefully that, yeah. Also, if you have any questions, hit me up there and we'll talk about it um, at one point in the service. So if you're needy, if you're poor, if that bruised reed or the smoldering wick, or whatever those kind of things, if you're like, yeah, that really feels like me right now, um, or at least that part of my life feels like that right now. Uh, if you recognize there are parts of your life, the parts of your heart that are in the dark, that there are parts of your heart that are blind. When you hear of someone undoing that, that is really good news. That's amazing. Like I, to, uh, just amazing, imagine what it could be like to you're born blind and one day to be able to see and to, for all the things that you see to make sense to your brain. That would be the most crazy thing that you've ever experienced in your life. And that's exactly what the servant does in our hearts. Reversing all that oppression is really good news. And one more thing um, about the servant here is how he will do it. We're told how the servant's gonna accomplish this cosmic tax, task. Sometimes if you're like, um, we have this huge massive problem, what we really need is a strong leader to bulldoze through everything and to like sort everybody out. He's not gonna, he's not here to make friends, but he's here to get the things done and things are gonna be good in the end and may not be an enjoyable process as we go through it. This is not like what we're told here in the servant in verse two. We're told this servant is not gonna shout He's not going to cry out. He's not going to raise his voice in the streets. Again, he's not going to break those bruised reeds. He's not going to snuff out those smoldering wicks. He's not a raving madman. He's not your, um, you don't have to stand on a podium in the middle of like a public square shouting at people. I remember uh, when we were at uni, um, there is this uh, square called Turlington Square and you would get campus preachers that were the most hate-filled, horrible, bigoted people I've ever met in my life. They would make signs that were, I mean, higher than this, like, full, like, um, like their own kind of handmade signs of like, you are going to hell if you are part of a fraternity, are part of a sorority, if you're gay, if you 
uh, I don't know, don't read your Bible. If you like, like, I mean, they had a literal list of all these things. If you're rich and you don't give your money to all these things, and they're just spouting hate, people pass by, you're going to hell. You're, they don't know these people. They're just shouting, telling them to go to hell. These people were here nearly every single day. Uh, it, was, it was horrible. Um, and especially for someone who identifies as Christian at uni, I'm like, wow, this is rough. But the great thing was no one liked them, including Christians. So um, it was a little bit easier to be like, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus does not like those guys either. Let me tell you why. That is not how Jesus works. He's gentle. He takes his time. He's very patient. He, the bruised reeds, he doesn't break. The smoldering wicks, he doesn't snuff out. He sees the dignity in those who are exhausted. Who's not exhausted now, right? He sees the dignity in the weak. He sees the dignity in the useless, and he uses them in his own kind of gentle way. He remakes them. These are the new things a servant declares. In verse nine, it says, see, the former things have taken place. You've went through all this difficulty, and now new things I declare. Formerly weak, formerly enslaved, exhausted, burned out, needy, poor, in the dark, by forces outside of our own control, and also by our own doing, if we're honest, he sets us free. He opens our eyes. He releases our hearts from sitting in dungeons all alone, and now we get to be in the light. And this isn't just for us. It's not just for people who Isaiah was writing to, his audience. It's not just for us, like here, who are sitting here. It's for the nations in verse one. Justice is, goes across the earth in verse four. For the Gentiles, which means anyone who's not Jewish, which is probably most people in here, not everybody, but most people in here. In verse six, that means uh, uh, in verse four, the islands are gonna put their hope. Remember, the islands were the farthest reaches of, of the world that symbolize that. Even those who are far, far, far off, we'll find hope in the servant. And now we're not just talking about geography, right? Even those who are far, far, far off will put their hope in Jesus. And I wonder if that's you. There's a story in Luke chapter four where Jesus uh, walks into a synagogue. He unfurls the scroll, the reading for the day, the scripture reading, and he reads Isaiah 61, of which there are really clear connections to Isaiah 42. He says this in Luke 4, 18 and 19. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Sounds familiar. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Familiar. Recovery of sight for the blind. Familiar. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in what must have been the ultimate mic drop moment, he puts the scroll back up, sits down, and even not even with his back towards the synagogue, he says, this scripture is now fulfilled in your presence. If I was to say that, you guys would be like, this guy's lost his brains. Uh, but I don't need to say it. Jesus has already said it. This is who Jesus said he was. Jesus is the servant with a capital S. He became a slave to free us from slavery. He became weak to free us from our weakness. He went into the darkness of death so that we never would. That means the cross itself is not just about forgiveness of sins. Yes, it is about forgiveness of sins, but it's also an aspect of justice, of setting all the wrong things right. That's what is accomplished on the cross. The cross is about reversing all the effects of sin in this world and renewing all of it on all levels in many ways. That's what his justice is about. And the new thing he's declaring is you, remade. Actually, more than that, you all, y'all. We just had some people from America, Southern, uh, yeah, American Southern states. It's, it's y'all. You guys. The cost of justice should have been our lives. That would have been real justice, but it wasn't. The servant, the capital S, in his own gentle way, gave his life so we would live in the justice of God, knowing his words and his truth, and his truth sets us free. 
And now Jesus is the servant, capital S, and that makes those who follow him servants, lowercase s. Through him, we're no longer weak slaves, but we get to join him in his work. The servants follow the way of the servant because now through Jesus, we have his spirit, the presence upon us. Because now through Jesus, uh, the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit, we get to be the one who God delights in. All this stuff here is going on in verse one. He gets to choose us. He gets to delight in us. He puts his spirit on us. And uh, through us, now justice comes to the nations. Not everybody knew about it through Jesus. How is, how is Jesus going to accomplish his task? Through his church. That's the crazy thing. He, he left his, his task unfinished and invites us to be able to be a part of it. Whether that's the islands, the farthest reaches of this world, or whether it's just kind of our back garden or the pub. That means as we go about our lives, we also do so with the same kind of gentleness, the same kind of dignity for all people, regardless of how the world or the church might categorize them. And this, I think, is very interesting, that the way the servant has chosen for his justice to go out, for his word to go forth, the word that heals blind people, that frees prisoners, that releases people from darkness, the way the capital S servant brings his justice is through us, his servants. We take the word of the Lord out into the world. The new thing done in us calls out to others that new things might be done in them. I mean, if you were once blind and now you experience sight, you'd probably tell a few people, maybe one or two people, maybe, right? Like, oh, you know, I can see now, but yesterday, I couldn't see a thing. It was all crazy. And if there was a way for that person that you're talking to who is also blind to experience sight, you'd probably tell them. If you were oppressed in prison and that somehow, through some ways beyond your own knowledge, now you're free and your friends in that prison could also be free through that same system, you'd probably tell them about it. I wonder if the reason we don't talk about Jesus more with other people is because we don't really get how poor and needy we are. We just think, ah, we were okay. Maybe Jesus made us like, you know, 50, he gave us like a one or 2% bump how blind we once were, how spiritually oppressed we once were. To not talk about it really perpetuates an unjust system where people will remain blind, captive, and then in the dark. Now, for all of us who have experienced new life that we have in Jesus, we get to be those lowercase servants, following the way and the uppercase servant. Part of that way is being a people who join him in bringing his justice into this world through the word, so that people would be healed, so people would be whole, so people would be made free and released. And this is one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit is in you, is for this very thing. Jesus, with a capital S, became a slave to free us from slavery. He became weak to free us from our weakness, and he went into the darkness of death so that we never would. And this is what we will celebrate today as we eat and drink for the Lord's